Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. It is good to be with you on this morning. I would ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find the Bible uh, in front of you, in the seat in front of you. Um, And we would ask that you would follow along this morning uh, from either your own copy or the copy that you find underneath that chair of God's Word. Now before we begin, I want to draw your attention back to uh, what we have read already as we were lighting the candles. Clint read for us Psalm chapter 25, or the 25th Psalm, and I just want us to reread those words and think about them as we are going to be going to John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. This is what the verses that he read said. It said, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now this seems to be the longing of all mankind, of all believers. Remember me, Lord, Remember not my sins, but according to your steadfast love, your mercy, for the sake of your goodness, remember me. In fact, the Lord throughout all of time has been revealing himself to his people to help them see his steadfast love to them. And this morning, we will read and learn about how God always keeps his promises of his steadfast love. If you will read along with me as I read the inspired word of God for you this morning. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hear the word of God this morning. Now this morning, I want to draw your attention to three different questions. The first question I want you to think about is, who is the word? Who is this word that is helping us understand these verses that we're going to be in this morning? And then the second question you can ask is, what has he done? What has this word, who will unpack What has this word done? And then finally, the third question you should ask this morning is, how should I respond? So when you're looking, if you're a note taker, this is how you would break up your notes, or I think might be helpful in answering these three questions. Who is the word? Verses 14 and 15. What has he done? 16, 17, 18. And then how should I respond? That's how we're going to try to unpack God's word for you this morning. So we begin in what might be the Mount Everest of theological endeavors as we look at the book of John 
the gospel according to John, especially in this first chapter. And it begins in verse 14 with, and the word. Now we already have to stop because we have to start unpacking who is this word. And we have to ask another question. Why is the word capitalized in your Bible? It's because it's explaining to you a person. And not just any person or title, but an extremely important one. So let's move back up in our chapter, back to verse 1. And we read this mind-blowing explanation of this word. In the beginning was the word. Well, the beginning was a long time ago, and it's going to keep unpacking this, right? And the word was with God. Wow, that's, that's the very beginning. If this word was with God. Okay, that's interesting for us to understand. And the word was God. What? Right? That's when the noodle kind of just cooks. We're, we're done when we're trying to fathom who is the word, right? Who is this word? Well, this word was God, is God. This word was with God. This word was in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. And not only this, but all things were made through him. And not anything that was ever made that was made was made without him. This is assigning the word characteristics of God, his eternality, his being God himself, uh, him being the creator of all things. Now, for the Jewish context of reading this, they would understand the word being something important. We see the word happening throughout the all, all the Old Testament of being that power of God, the creation of God coming through the spoken word of God. And now we see, wait, and the word was with God and the word was God and in him was life. So, so what have we learned already just in about three words uh, in our first verse of 14 about who God is or, or who the word is. Well, the word is God. This word was from the very beginning before anything else was made. He was with God, our God, the Father. And was the word was also God. This is, if you're, if you're already starting to get confused, this is where we get the idea of the Trinity, okay? To make it just even more confusing, right? This beautiful truth of the Trinity, which talks about there being one God and three persons. And what we see already this morning is we're talking about two of the people. We're talking about God the Father and the Word, who we know as the Son. So we have these two members already in the beginning of this chapter. Both are God, and we will see as it continues to unpack for us this mind-blowing concept about what God has done. So, so who is the Word? Well, the Word is God, and the Word is became. This should immediately cause us to pause. Now, the word becoming something doesn't mean that the word was created. We need to make that abundantly clear right from the beginning. Because if we try to say that the word somehow didn't exist at some point, well, now we're crossing over into some heresy. We're crossing over into some thoughts that God, Christ, God the Son was created, and that's not true. But he did become and that's something worth considering and unpacking. In the Greek, 
understanding this word becoming means to enter or assume a certain state or condition. So what did the word assume then? Well, the very next word. And the word became flesh. Flesh. The author could have said anything else. He could have said the word became man, but he used the word flesh. Why did John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decide to use this word? Well, he uses this word to show us that it was the entire man who needed saving, both the inner and the outer, the flesh and bones of humanity. It was all important to God's redemptive plan. So the word took on flesh or the word took on human nature. Whew. My mind is starting to, to hurt. But as we see one God in three persons, we see this word, this eternal word, as one person and, and two distinct natures. So let's, let's go back to an old dead Puritan to help us. Uh, Stephen Sharnock says, What a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes man upon earth and angels in heaven. Christ took on human flesh. This is what we celebrate with these candles. This is what we've been celebrating with these readings. This is what we will be celebrating on Christmas Eve when we come back to worship together. Like uh, Pastor Brandon was praying for us that God would be with us. Emmanuel. Well, he did. And the word became flesh. But this isn't it. Verse 14, we've got, to, we've got to spend a lot of time here unpacking this word. Who was the word? Well, the word became flesh. This eternal, ever-existent word has taken on, has assumed a human nature, and he has dwelt among us. Okay, so we need to stop again and understand what does it mean for God to dwell with us? Now, if you're uh, starting to get excited about this kind of theology stuff, this gets even more delicious at this point because when we look at this word dwelling, it actually points us back to the Old Testament. When we look at the word dwell, it actually means, uh, or it was actually translated from the Hebrew to the Greek in this word, but the Hebrew word that was translated was tabernacle. So when we read, and the word, who was God, became, took on a human nature of flesh and dwelt, it means, and he tabernacled with his people. That's an incredible thing to ponder for a moment. And again, for a Jewish reader, this would have kind of lightning bolts going off here and there when they're reading this good news of John. They would say, wait a minute. God has always tabernacled with his people. We see this through all of redemptive history, that this biblical theology of the temple 
as God has chosen a people to dwell with. And as he's done that through this tabernacle that went through a desert for years and years and they would have to set it up and then the Shekinah glory would come down and dwell with the people. And then at some point, David wants to make this temple and God says, no, you can't, but your son will. And so then Solomon makes this beautiful temple for God to dwell in and then the temple's destroyed or even before that, Christ comes and becomes that living temple and then the temple is destroyed and now we understand this idea of tabernacling as the Holy Spirit tabernacling in us. You see, this idea of tabernacle or dwelling with God, dwelling with his people is immensely important, not just for the Jew, but for us, the Gentile as well. It's a beautiful reality that the word became flesh to dwell with his people for a purpose. If you would go to Galatians 4.4, you'll see that there's an actual purpose for this. That God had a plan for Christ to come. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, the flesh, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you see, this, this isn't just um, a fun story to recall at Christmas time that Jesus became a babe, but it was immensely important for the redemptive plan of God from all of eternity that the word would become flesh and dwell amongst us. And then we, then we see more God language assigned to the word. We see, and we have seen his glory. Now, I think it's important for us to define who the we is in this, right? This is John, the, uh, the disciple of Christ, who is writing this gospel. This is John who is with Christ, with the other disciples, and he is saying that we have seen his glory. Now, think of glory for a moment. We need to unpack the word glory. Glory means radiance, greatness, splendor, brightness. This is a word, uh, even weightiness, the glory of God. We see in Hebrews 1.3, which you should all be intimately uh, acquainted with by this point as we have been working through Hebrews. But Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. So Christ is the glory of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when they say we've seen his glory, they're assigning to him a godness. They're saying we have seen the glory of Christ or of the word because we have been with him. John says that they have seen his glory because they witnessed it. They saw Christ be baptized. They saw the Spirit descend like a dove upon Christ. They heard the Father's words talking about His Son in whom He is well pleased. Not only did they see His baptism, but they saw Him turn water into wine or feed crowds of thousands or heal the sick or raise the dead or even transfigure before them in glory. At least some of them. They saw him die and rise again from the grave. Oh, they saw the glory of the word. 
And then we read, not only His glory, but glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, we get into some more fun theology here because maybe many of you memorized John 3.16 and when you memorized it at some point in your life, you memorized it as the only begotten Son. That word may be familiar with you. And it comes from the Greek monogeneus. And that's what we see right here when we read glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is the idea that God the Father has begotten the Son from all of eternity. And in fact, it means to be the only one of its kind or class, completely unique. This is the one and only Son from the Father. And they have seen His glory, full of grace and truth. And I know we're just still in verse 14, and you guys are like, man, You're spending a lot of time here, but this is how we're going to unpack what did he come to accomplish? What did he do, right? Who is he and what has he done? Well, it says here, John says that he was full of grace and truth. Well, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Christ was full of it. He was full of this unmerited favor to give to the people. Why? Because he was God. And it was impossible to muster up enough merit to make him favor you. It was impossible to do that. Even for the best person, even for the best Pharisee trying to follow the law, they couldn't muster up enough merit to be perfect in God's sight. And that's why Christ was full of grace and truth. You might be in here this morning as one of those people trying to muster up your own merit. Oh, if I'm only good enough. If I can only appear to everybody else to be all put together, if I only say the right things so people won't ask me the hard questions, friends, you can't do it. You're going to fail. You will fail. You cannot do this by yourself. You are not an autonomous created being. You are someone who is completely dependent upon grace and truth. So, as we continue, but it wasn't just grace that this word was full of. It was truth. It was how we orient our reality, how we understand that anything is real. Christ was full of it. Christ was the only thing that could bring reality. He was full of truth. Now we see Christ elsewhere in the gospel according to John, specifically the 14th chapter in verse 6, says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's only through him that we can go to the Father. So when we understand this truth then, this, this orientation of reality, we must realize that this truth is in fact the gospel of which Christ has come to tell us what we need. To repent And believe in him for salvation because he is the only way to the Father. This is only one verse, friends. And then we see after verse 14, after this kind of just explosive understanding of who the word would be, then we get a testimony. We get John the Baptist giving us good Trinitarian theology all the way back then. He says, 
he, he, he's crying out, and we'll read it as we continue in, in the book of John, or as you will continue, hopefully reading John at a later time, that, that John will testify this. And he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Well, I don't know if that would make you scratch your head, but I'm sure that made a lot of people scratch their head. What are you talking about? Someone coming after you is before you? What? Help us understand that, right? And what the, the gospel according to John, the author John, who is not John the Baptist, who he's quoting here, but he's trying to draw your attention to someone lending credibility here. He's saying, look, even John the Baptist, which people, by the way, the Jews loved John the Baptist. He had a great following going after him. I mean, he was a little odd. He did some weird things, but he was well-renowned. He had Pharisees asking him who he was and John telling them, no, it's not me. He's coming after me. And he who comes after me was actually before me. He's telling them it is the Messiah. It is the eternal word of God who comes after me. So although John the Baptist here understands this great Trinitarian truth, we know that John the Baptist is a man and he has times later on where he actually goes to Jesus or sends his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one or should we expect someone else? So he doesn't have it all together, um, but he certainly at this point is able to show us this reality that Christ was from eternity. So we have this foundation of who the Word is. This eternally existent God who is dwelling now in two natures. 100% man and 100% God. And there's a purpose for that. So what has He done? Okay, so if we have unpacked then, who is this Word? Now we need to ask the question, well, what has He done? Why should we care? that he is both God and flesh. What has he done? And we come to this verse in verse 16, again, that should just, just make you pause. For from his fullness, what a phrase, from the fullness of the God-man, in the fullness of both divine and human natures, we have all received. This just blew my mind as I was studying this week. This idea of we're we're just unpacking who this word is and then we get this statement and from his fullness. What could be more full than God? The deity of God, eternally existent, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing. From this fullness, we will receive something. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 is a good place to take a note here that really unpacks this idea of the fullness of God. And and I even think this is kind of a mind-melting reality. And it says this in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This idea of the fullness of the word in both human and divine nature is so very important for our redemption. Stephen Wellam, a systematic theologian, uh, writes this. He says, as God the Son, 
He remains what he has always been in relation to the Father and the Spirit, fully and equally sharing the divine nature. But now the word has assumed a human nature to reveal the divine glory and achieve our redemption. In that human nature, the Son is now able to live and experience a fully human life, yet without any change to the Son's deity, since this would preclude him from displaying the fullness of the Father's glory and accomplishing his mission to save. It is from this fullness, friends, that we have all received grace upon grace. What a beautiful thing to highlight, underline, circle, square, exclamation point in your Bible. Grace upon grace. Through this fullness, we have received unmerited favor upon unmerited favor. Now, when you look at the Greek here and grace upon grace, you actually read something pretty interesting. It's really grace in place of grace. Hmm. And if you look through the NIV, the New King James, the NASB, the ESV, whatever your favorite you know, uh, translation of Scripture is, you're going to see some nuance here in grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. And this phrase has a long interpretive tradition. And in fact, there's, there's a lot of grace in the interpreting of grace upon grace because it has just boggled the minds of awesome commentators throughout history. And I think, I think that's actually done for a purpose that we would not be able to grasp this reality of grace upon grace. But I want to look at it this morning within its context. I think the very next verse helps us unpack what it means to have grace upon grace a bit better. And so what you're going to see the author do here now, when John is explaining to us what has he done, he's going to bring one of the most revered people in the entire Jewish tradition at hand. He's going to bring up Moses. He's going to bring up the, the giver of the law. One of the patriarchs, the, the people would love Moses. And even the Pharisees talk about sitting in the seat of Moses. He has been made somebody just bigger than life. And what the author is going to do here is going to put Moses in his place. He's going to show the people and he's going to show you and me this morning what it means to have grace upon grace. So I'm going to say, which might feel weird to say, But friends, I think the law of Moses, for the law was given through Moses, I think the law of Moses was a grace. Now you'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that's the law. The law and grace are different. But let's think about it for a second. How can we comprehend what God is like or what he wants from us without his law? This is God's special revelation to us. 
There's, there's a, a couple different types of revelation. There's a general revelation where we can understand that there must be a God from seeing the beauty of his creation. And then we have a special revelation, which is actually God's words given to us. And friends, the law is God's words given to us by the finger of God himself. So, yeah, I think the law is grace to help us understand our sinfulness and our need for a savior. This afternoon, I want you to go read Galatians chapter three. I know all of you will do it. I can see it in your eyes, okay? So go read Galatians chapter three and get a fuller picture of this idea of law and grace and how they've, they're kind of coming together. We need, to, we need to understand clearly the distinction between law and grace, but not to throw away the law as something that's just horrible. No, we need it to see our need for a savior. But, all the low, but although the law would help us see our sinfulness, it could never save us. Think about it. Obedience to the law was merited favor. It was, you did something good, so you got something good. It was merited favor. What was that definition of grace again? Oh, that definition of grace is unmerited favor. You see, obedience to the law was merited, but Christ has brought unmerited favor in the truth of the gospel. This is grace in place of grace. The gospel that Jesus brings is grace upon grace upon grace. The ultimate grace was brought through God's supreme revelation. Through the God become man. One person and two natures. 100% God and 100% man. That, friends, this morning is the story of grace upon grace. But the author doesn't stop here. He doesn't stop in helping us understand what has Christ come to do? What has the word come to do? No, he's not even done with Moses yet. We read right after that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We read right after that, that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, when you read, no one has ever seen God, especially in light of Moses, there might be some backlash here. Wait a minute. I've read the Old Testament a time or two. I remember Exodus chapter 33, where we hear that man cannot see God and live, but we also know that, that Moses was, was put up in the cleft of the rock, right? And the presence of God passed by him, and he only saw the backside of God because to behold God and all of his majesty, man could not live. So neither would Moses. But Moses was able to see the backside as God passed by and even just, just glancing upon the backside of God, later Moses' face was shining and actually scared the people when he came down from the mountain. Cover your face. You're terrifying us. They were seeing just a hint of the glory of God and not the glory was, that was beheld in the sun. So Moses, this uh, massively important figure for the Jews, 
He's so important for them, yet he had not seen God. He had not behold God in all of his wondrous mystery. But Christ, the Word, the only God. Okay, so when you read this, maybe you got confused. I know when I read it, it got a little confusing. And actually, I think the NIV actually unpacks this pretty clearly for us. Uh, But I'll, I'll help you out here. No one has ever seen God right? You have the semicolon, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So when we read the only God, we actually have other translations that say the only begotten God or the only begotten Son. And the reason why they make this translation is because it comes from the same word that we talked about earlier in verse 14, monogeneus. The word became flesh who is at the Father's side He is this only Son. He is the only God. He is a member of the Trinity. This one, this word become flesh, is the one who has seen God. Because he was at the Father's side. Now this too, I think, is interesting. Because Father's side can actually be translated as the Father's bosom. And when you, you know, that's probably not a word that we use a whole lot these days, right? The Father's bosom. And what that's trying to show to us is the incredible intimacy that was experienced between the Word and the Father. Something that nobody else could experience in all of eternity, but that there would be this dwelling together in this bosom. Now we see kind of highlights of this in the New Testament as the disciples lean and put their head upon Christ's bosom uh, as they recline at the table we actually see a story that Christ tells us in the rich man and Lazarus where the rich man is crying out to Lazarus to get him water and Lazarus is actually in Abraham's bosom. It's this idea of intimacy. So no one has ever seen God except the only God who is at the Father's bosom. He has made him known. Whereas Moses mediated between the people and God by bringing the word, Christ has mediated by being the word. Both God and man and making the Father known. Now as we look at making the Father known, this is so cool. This could be translated that Christ has exegeted the Father. When we say has made him known, that comes from the Greek word exegete. And maybe you're familiar with that as we try our best by God's spirit to do expository preaching or expositional preaching as we go and try to determine what the scripture actually means. That's what a good exegesis is. And the best exegete is Christ because he is the word and he is the one that has made the father known to us all by exegeting what the Father is like. Now, we don't have uh, one of our sweet shepherds here this morning, Phil, as he's not feeling good, but I wanted to embarrass him, so maybe if he listens to this. Um, But there is that disciple, Philip, who who says the most audacious thing in Scripture. He's with Christ, and, and, and Christ has been having this long ministry with him, and what does Philip say? He says, well, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Christ just stares at him, right? And tells him, 
have I not been with you this whole time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father in the flesh. That's what Hebrews is trying to tell us. That's why this is so important to sit here and not just gloss over the prologue and John chapter 1, but to realize the audacity, the radiance, the splendor, the brightness of the Word become flesh. We see that the Word, friends, is our supreme Revelation. Now, there's no systematic category for that, and I'm sure the best of systematic theologians would scoff at me for saying that. Um, But we have a general revelation, we have a special revelation, and then Christ is our supreme revelation of the Father, being his exact imprint. He has exegeted to the people who the Father is to save us. So remember now, as we started off in Psalm 25. And now we end by basking in the glory of how God has remembered his steadfast love, his mercy, his goodness, how he has forgiven the sins of our youth and our transgressions by the supreme revelation of Christ. The eternal word made flesh and dwelt among us and has brought us grace upon grace. So then you have to answer the third question. So we answered, who is the word and what has he done? The word is the eternal existent God. What has he done? He has brought grace upon grace. He has brought the unmerited favor of God as he has come to give us the gospel that we would repent and believe in him and have eternal life, that we would have the opportunity to become children of God. So then, friend, you have to ask the question, how do I respond? And in fact, this is the entire point of John's gospel. It's the response. It's not just to be a a wicked, awesome uh, commentator, theologian that John is on the Old Testament, but it's for him to help you see this is the point. How do I respond? The letter is about the good news. John is trying to help you understand that the good news or what the good news is in order to respond to the truth that is being presented to you. In fact, John 20, 30 through 31 says as much. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life In his name. Or go back to chapter 1, where John says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, how do you respond if you are not a believer in the word this morning, the God man, the very God of the universe? Then your response this morning should be belief in him. Trusting that Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father who came to save sinners by dying on the cross for your sin so that you may stand before God forgiven, forgiven by grace and truth and not your merits. Oh, to know the grace that comes from the precious blood of Christ 
Today, repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. And from his fullness, you will receive grace upon grace as you become a child of God. Now, for those of us who are children of God, how do we respond this morning? Would you adore Christ? Remember his steadfast love by sending the word to become flesh, to die for your sins. Remember the undeserved mercy he gave you and his goodness that never falters or fails. Christ, the supreme revelation of God, brings you the truth. Friend, this morning, would you respond by clinging to Christ? Would you worship Christ? Would you cherish Christ? Christ. And for those believers who are like the psalmist, asking God because of the experience that he's having not to forget his steadfast love, his mercy, his goodness, friend, here this morning, he hasn't. No matter what your experience is this morning, God is always faithful to his promises. Christ, the God man, has come and has reconciled you to your Creator. This morning, you are able to see what the psalmist could have only imagined, that Christ alone would be the yes and amen to all his promises. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you, and as we prepare our hearts to sing your praises, Lord, would you help us see our ultimate need for Christ, our ultimate desire to follow him, to see the God-man made flesh and dwelt among us, to bring us the only grace and truth that we will ever need, and that is that Christ has come to save sinners, that who would ever believe in his name, he would give eternal life. God, thank you for Christ, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.